All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back today, Alabama Care. And we have the pleasure of having Dr. Laura K. Vogel, who is the Director of the Department of Occupational Therapy at UAB, and Dr. Sarah C. Tucker, Professor at the Department of Occupational Therapy at UAB. And today we're gonna to be talking about occupational therapy and kind of doing a soft intro for anyone that's not familiar with it. And at this point, I'd like to hand it back over. Dr. Vogel, if you would introduce yourself. Um, I've been at UAB for 25 years. Uh, I was a practicing occupational therapist for 25 years working with children at the University of Virginia. Um, and I still do some work with adults with cerebral palsy. And I also do some work with the Children's Rehab Services Augmentative Communication Clinic. So lots of different hats. Are you originally from Alabama? Oh no, I'm a Yankee. I'm from Massachusetts. Well, it's good to have you here. I'm originally from Philadelphia. So as a fellow Yankee, uh, I think they say damn Yankee when you move here for good. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> and, and Dr. Tucker, if you would introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Dr. Tucker and I also am from Massachusetts. Um, and I, my, my practice area is in mostly pediatrics. So after I graduated, I started working in rehab hospitals um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then here at Children's Hospital. And um, I've been teaching at UAB mostly in pediatrics, and then I also teach community-based OT, and I've been there for about seven years. Um, I also started interested in how OTs can um, work in the community with populations such as the prison population or any at-risk um, population that's, you know, at risk for incarceration or things like that. I know the prison system has kind of been a hot topic in the state of Alabama recently. I have a good friend, uh, Mr. James Tucker at ADEP, uh, and he's gone through some, you know, filing against the prison system that they're not doing the right things for people that have a disability or mental health issues. So I know that that's been a very hot topic in the state of Alabama. Um, and between both of your knowledge, anybody that has questions, we do this live on Facebook so anybody can ask questions in the chat. I'm sure that uh, both of these doctors would be able to kind of address those questions that you have. But I'd like to start, Dr. Vogel, if you could give us an overview of what occupational therapy is. Okay, I'll give you mine and then Sarah, feel free to chime in <laughs> as we go through. So occupational therapy is a health um, related service. And basically we work in a variety of settings, acute care, uh, rehabilitation, outpatient, uh, long-term uh, skilled nursing facility, um, and so forth. And so what we do is we do, we work to improve people's ability to do the things that they care about and the things that they need to do. So things like being able to feed yourself, dress yourself, um, have a job, um, be able to communicate with other people, um, to participate in education, to participate in leisure activities, those kinds of things. And we, one of the ways that we do that that's rather unique to the profession is that in the process of doing rehabilitation, we will work with the person on the activities that they want to do. So it's not just strengthening and stretching. We do a little bit of that too. Um, but more of our work is geared towards having people do the things that they want to do and help them figure out ways to do that. So it's in many ways a problem-solving approach. It's not me telling someone what to do, but me working with them so they can figure out how to do what they want to do. Mm. Is there anything you'd add there? 
No, I just like to also say that we um, kind of our specialty is that we'll analyze the person, the environment and the activity that they're trying to do. And, um, you know, and then we help problem solve figuring out why are they not able to reach those goals? And then how can we either um, improve like their body functions, you know, so they are stronger to do those things? Or is it that we need to do that and adapt the environment? Um, or, you know, modify the activity they're trying to do. So we, we look at that big picture and, um, and it's also not just physical. So we're looking at physical, mental and spiritual aspects of the person um, to figure out, you know, again, how can we help them live a productive and meaningful life, whatever that means to them. Uh, when you're introducing that, uh, a lot of the activities that you both spoke about uh, don't necessarily have to do with finding work. When I hear the word occupational, I think of occupation, uh, and I would go see an occupational therapist to help improve my work experience or get a job, but a lot of occupational therapy doesn't have to do with having a living wage or anything like that and finding work. Right, and so I, I get frustrated because my students, like on Facebook, it's OT month this month, so I'll see my former students saying, well, we can't help you get a job, but we can help you do all this other stuff. And my point is, yes, we can help you get a job because that is an area of occupation. That is something that people do with their lives. So it's not that we can't do that. It's just, that's not all we do. So um, again, we define occupation as anything that's a meaningful activity, anything that's meaningful in your life. So work is one of those things. But yes, I think when people hear occupation, they hear work and they think we're like work rehab or um, when you go to like the occupational health people, you know, where you have a job um, that it, we are very different from that. But we talk about areas of occupation, like Dr. Vogel was saying, like your basic self-care areas of occupation and then play, leisure, rest and work is one of those areas as well. I think all of us have heard that very thing that, well, how can you help my two-year-old get a job? And it's, it's like, uh, let's, let's restart that and talk a little bit about what we really need by occupation. Yeah, I imagine that's kind of the first conversation there. And the way that you're presenting it sounds like a very holistic approach that maybe some of the things that you're working on and helping individuals overcome those challenges can be uh, adapted in different environments. So if they're they're wanting to learn that skill for the home, it may transfer over to uh, a work kind of environment there. Now, when you're meeting with individuals, do you have them come in or do most occupational therapists have them come into an office setting or will there sometimes be like you're going into the field and, and visiting that individual at their home? You know, it's very specific to the type of uh, job that you have. So if you're working, for example, at Children's of Alabama, then you're going to be seeing them at the hospital or in the outpatient clinic. But if you're doing home health, as many of therapists do, then you'll actually go to visit the person in the home. Mm. So becoming an occupational like, um, early intervention, which is you know birth to three, and and then we'll see them in their natural environment. So if the child um, you know is typically at the home all day, then we'll see them at the home. But if they're usually in the daycare, then the OT can go to the daycare, um, you know, and see how they're playing and um, doing motor skills in that natural setting, and train the people that are with them all day. So it really is very setting specific. Very much so. so 
if somebody was thinking about going in to become an occupational therapist, they can kind of decide what career they would want. If they'd want to be more in the hospital at UAB or if they'd want to focus more on the field work, uh, they have that ability to choose that direction there. It's not a one size fits all. Right. And it's, it's very, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. You want me you to guys, go? Yeah. I think it's, um, what's cool about it is when you um, are trained as an OT, you're trained as an entry level generalist. So you, you know, you have the opportunity to start in one setting and then for whatever reason you might decide like, you know, I thought I wanted to do pediatrics, but now I don't know, there's a job opening at the VA and I feel like I would like to work with veterans and more mental health. And so you can make those changes throughout your career. Um, you know, a lot of new therapists go into hospital rehab settings so they can learn a wide variety of skills um, and then maybe they have their own families and they want a more, you know, a better schedule that lines up with their family. So they might transition to school-based OT where you're in the school setting, you have the same vacations and days off as, you know, the children in school. Um, so people do do a lot of transitioning through their career, um, you know, depending on what they decide they want to do. And it helps uh, if you're in a mobile family so that if you're married and your husband moves around a lot, then you can go to different places and then you can fit in pretty much into any particular opening that happens to be there. As well, there are specialty certifications so that you can get a specialty certification, for example, in hand therapy or in mental health or in working on um, assistive technology or working with adults with low vision. So there are many, many different options out there. What does the job market look like for someone that may be graduating uh, and becoming an occupational therapist? Is there high demand right now or what are you guys seeing there? It's been a pretty steady demand over time. I, I won't deny that COVID has had an impact. It really has. Um, so as we come out of COVID, I would expect to see things pick up. Um, because the students who graduated during the COVID were having a little bit of a hard time finding things. But the demand has always been very steady. And we've always been in the top 10 or 20 job openings that are considered the most marketable. And I think in general now with the baby boomers getting older, you know, the jobs are out there. And also like I used to work in the NICU. So we save these children that are, you know, very, very sick, very, very young where, you know, decades ago, they um, didn't survive. So I think in general, the job market is there and it will continue to grow. I think sometimes what happens is students when they graduate want to stay where they're at. So like the Birmingham market is difficult because there's so many OT schools in this area, even though that's such a big hospital, you know, um, community, there's only so many jobs in those, um, you know, bigger cities. Um, like Massachusetts, where we're both from, it's the same thing. There's a lot of OT schools. So, you know, some of those bigger cities, it's harder to get a job. But if you're going to go to, if you're okay going with, to a rural setting or you're okay to move, you know, around to different states, um, there's a job for you. I think it's just, um, you know, pocketed in certain areas sometimes. Or like when the students first graduate, you know, they're all looking for a job at the same time. So it's harder to find a job in those few months. Um, you know, and then they have more success as the year goes on. 
it kind of gets saturated for a few months, three to six months there right after graduation. And I think you hit that spot on. I've been in Birmingham for four years now, and I kind of think Birmingham is a medical area. There's a lot of really cool medical things going on here, a lot of jobs, a lot of education. Um, but it makes sense that you might have to move out as a fresh grad and kind of spread your wings in a different part of the country there. Um, what exactly does it take to graduate? Uh, what education is needed to become an occupational therapist? <laughs> well, it's changing a little bit. So back when I was in school in the dark old days, it was a bachelor's degree. Um, and then in 2006, they made it a mandatory master's degree. Um, and so right now you can get a master's degree. You can't get a bachelor's degree anymore in practice. Although if you still just have a bachelor's degree, they'll grandfather you in. And then the latest step is to move in, is it 2025, Sarah, um, is the move to a clinical doctorate. And so at that point, they're requiring all programs to be at the clinical doctorate level. So it really has gone through a lot of changes over time. And as far as, you know, you can have an undergrad in any degree. Um, and then the OT schools would, they, um, you know, there are certain prerequisites that you have to take to get in the program. So we'll have people with undergrad degrees in engineering and history and, you know, all kinds of different, you know, maybe they didn't know they wanted to be an OT till they were junior year of their undergrad. So you just have to make sure you take those prerequisites that the school requires for you to apply. Um, you know, and then you can you can get in. It's a, it's a little bit competitive. Like our school, we take 60 students a year um, and we always have hundreds and hundreds of applications, um, you know, each year. So it is competitive. So it's things like GPA and, um, there, you know, there's other things that we look at as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's good in that way that you don't have to know right away. But I think that's, I, we make a push like trying to find people in high school and make sure they know about OT because, again, a lot of people don't know what we are, or what we do. Um, and so they kind of find this career path later sometimes. Um, and then they have to take all those prereqs, um, which can get expensive and all of that. So for sure, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of no fun when you have to go back and take some some other classes there. to get. Um, now, how do you guys feel about that 2025 uh, rule are coming in that additional education. Are you guys in favor of that? Yeah. Or you, you... Um, you know, it's hard every time they transition. Um, you think, is this really necessary? But healthcare is changing so dramatically at this point. Um, there's so much new coming out in the way of technology. Um, and I think the responsibilities have changed some. So, you know, there's some of it I, I kind of go, eh, not so sure. But then there's part of me that says, yeah, I think we need to, to really keep up with everything that's going on in our world right now. Our program is becoming um, entry-level doctoral this summer. So we are phasing out our entry-level master's program and will be entry-level doctoral. I have to say, like, there's been um, back and forth about it for years and years, and we they were going to adopt it earlier, and then they didn't. Um, but our program decided to go ahead and, you know, do it anyway. So we'll be the first um, OT program in the state that's entry-level doctorate. I used to teach in an OT assistant program, which is an associate degree, and you, you know, you have your um, associate's degree, and you can work, um, you know, in all those settings we just talked about. And um, right now, Wallace State is the only 
um, OTA program in our state. So that's the bridge between now an OT assistant with an associates and then an entry level doctoral student, you know, it's hard to go from one to the other. And to me, having a mandated OT doctoral degree, just seems like there's too wide of a gap. So, you know, that was kind of my struggle was, you know, what about these professionals that came out with an associate's degree and now want to go back to school to do, um, to be an OT and it makes it harder because they still they'll need a bachelor's degree to even apply to be you know to get into these entry-level OT programs so I feel like there needs to be more programs and things like there's a few bridging programs in the country but not very many so I do think going to entry-level doctoral um, makes that gap even harder and also the diversity in our profession is pretty poor like it were dominated by white women in the profession. Right. And so, again, I think, you know, requiring this extra schooling and all of that, as much as we say we want to improve diversity and that, I think um, that kind of prevents certain um, populations that don't have the financial means or don't have all that time, years and years to get a degree. I think that um, makes it even more difficult. So I definitely do see both sides of the argument. Um, and that's an argument that continues to be um, discussed. So it's a challenge. It's a hot topic nationally, I promise you. <laughs> um, and just kind of a little bit of history of occupational therapy. Um, do you feel like it's kind of a young profession? Uh, maybe in the last hundred years, something like that. It's really not that it hasn't been done before, but that it's been recognized in this way. And it's still kind of going through uh, some evolution there to be perfected. But it, I don't know any of the history of OT. If you could give us a little bit of background. Oh my gosh, let me dig here and Sarah jump in. Um, <laughs> it was World War, was it World War One? I, I believe, that they started. And it was at that time, it was very much a craft profession. So they did a lot of weaving and um, handcraft and those kinds of things, leather tooling and what have you. Um, and that's really where the history of occupation being things that are meaningful to you came from. Um, and then what has happened since that time is that the program, the, the profession has just kind of gradually grown. Um, I can't even recall exactly when they became known as a profession where you had to have a license and all those kinds of things. Um, I can tell you when I graduated, there was not state licensure. So at that time you had a national board that you passed. And then in the last, let's see, Oh gosh, probably the last 40, 30, 40 years, they've really pushed the licensure now so that I think every state at this point has licensure. So you have to go through a process to get licensed in each state as well as taking the national boards. Um, Sarah, what else can you add? You take, you teach that one course on well, occupation and history. Yeah, and I'll say my, my grandmother just turned 95 and she was an occupational therapist. So that's how I got into the profession. I was 12 and I was asking her about OT and so, I was looking at OT journals in middle school, um, you know, so when she started, it was like white nursing coats and a white hat and they, um, mental health was a big part of it. So we really did start with like what, what Dr. Vogel said, but also it was a mental health thing where people started to realize these people in institutions, when they had nothing to do, their mental health declined. And when they had, 
meaningful activity and structure in their day, they actually did better. So that's kind of where it started as well. Um, and my grandmother said, you know, it was like children were sick, so they needed play to kind of, you know, divert their attention from being sick or not feeling good. Um, and so that, and now it's evolved way more into science and evidence-based more than um, it was. And I do think like our national organization just celebrated our hundred year anniversary a couple of years ago. And my grandmother and I actually presented together at our national conference, which was really neat. And we talked about the differences and similarities over, you know, when she was an OT and um, my uh, history as an OT. And a lot of it is the same, the idea of meaningful occupation and being client-centered, um, but definitely the idea of like, um, you know, again, the evidence-based and that sort of thing, I think, because really, and that's where why we're talking about entry-level doctoral degrees is because, um, you know, there's way more of a push now that the science has kind of caught up. Um, but yeah, even then, no one knew what it was. And, you know, some of the same similar, it was very holistic and that sort of thing, even from the beginning. Uh, it's definitely catching a lot of traction, I think, in the last few years. And um, my first uh, introduction to it was when I, I moved to Alabama to help take care of a family member of mine. And she is 57 years old uh, and functions at about a three-year-old level, the doctors say. Um, and she was in the institution in Tuscaloosa, which was part low. And right. we're seeing a big, right. we're seeing a big push, and they they shut down Partlow, and we're seeing a big push now from the institutions to uh, private providers, and then also now the push is to your own home or your own apartment, and people coming into those locations, um, and I, that's where I first learned of OT is speaking with people in the community, um, and I think it's really blowing up. I think the the profession is really blowing up with that evidence base that you talked about. Um, and it's something that we're really going to need. You kind of hit it on the head with the baby boomers. You know, there's going to be a large population of people that are going to need these services throughout the next 30, 40 years. Um, and uh, so I, I, I hear a lot of people talking about it and then going into it. Like I'm thinking about going into this or I'm studying this in college to do this. Um, and I also want to talk a little bit about... Um, you, you mentioned that if someone was struggling in an institution, just focusing on you know, going out to get a little bit of exercise or, or doing something that makes you happy and really kind of where that started from. And I notice on days where I'm having a rough day, if I go for a walk, take my dog for a walk, if I go play hockey, uh, it makes my day a lot better. Um, and then when I'm having good days, if I get in a workout on top of that, it takes it to another level as well. Um, so kind of having that balance that you have to, you have to do things that you enjoy, but you have to be active as well to the point where if you can be active, be active. Um, I like that history there. Uh, what would you advise somebody that is in high school or in college or maybe going back to college? What would you advise them if they're looking to become an OT? To shadow, to go spend some time with an OT and not just one setting, but multiple settings. As, as we've talked about this with children, with school systems, there's nursing homes, there's hospitals, there are settings you can't get into for obvious confidentiality reasons and certainly psychiatric mental health settings that would be much harder, but there are many, many settings. And so one of the things that our program has really pushed for a long time is making sure that the people who come in are sure this is what they want to do. 
And really the best way to do that is to be there, is to actually experience it. And a lot of our students have family members or friends who, or themselves, who have been through a process of rehabilitation where they've been through occupational therapy and or physical therapy, and they've seen family members go through it. And some people who are struggling between physical therapy, for example, and occupational therapy, um, one of the things we always say is go watch, because that's the only way you're gonna really figure this out. Mm -hmm. And also, I think if even if students in high school know they do want to do something health related, PT, OT, speech therapy, again, taking either an, um, their bachelor's degree in a similar like, you know, we'll have a lot of students that are exercise science or kinesiology or psychology, because then they are taking some of those prereqs as part of your degree and getting your grades up because we are looking at GPA and that sort of thing because it is um, competitive. And like, you know, Dr. Vogel and I will look at um, applications and you can see when people don't know what they wanna do as an undergrad, you know, they're getting C's and D's. And then when they discover something they're passionate about, all of a sudden their GPA skyrockets because they're excited about what they're learning. So I think you know, it's one of those things not to be afraid to change. Like if you went in freshman year saying you thought you wanted a business degree and now all of a sudden you're like, oh no, I want healthcare. Make those decisions early and start taking the classes that will lead you towards, um, you know, a healthcare, you know, graduate program or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, in high school, you know, some children in high, like I knew at 12, so I did everything I could to keep myself likes to start on the right path. Um, but a lot of high schoolers don't know what they want to do. So, you know, even going to a community college and just taking some of those really general classes while you do try to decide instead of going to some big prestigious school and have no idea what you're doing while you're there, I think is important too. But I think a lot of it is just high school students don't know that we exist. And, um, you know, but like, um, Dr. Vogel said, the more you can just see it and see different settings, because we find that too, our applicants, a lot of times they had a family member. So that's the, their only idea of what OT is and don't realize it's so broad. Um, so yeah, the more they can experience as early as possible, the better. Kind of get a feel for the profession at a young age, just to make sure it fits well with what you want there. That's right. Well, That's right. we have the two experts with us right now. So I'd like to ask, um, since you guys are reviewing applications and allowing people into UAB and some people not getting in, is there anything other than the GPA that really sticks out in an application process for you? Absolutely. So for the entry level, it is that um, it's the experience. So, you know, we have an essay component and that really is what often separates people to get an interview. Um, so the ones, again, that have shadowed in a variety of places and can really talk about or like have a little bit of research experience. Maybe they've in undergrad did some sort of research project or had a mentor that helped them, you know, anything that kind of makes them stand out because that's most students these days in high school have a lot of volunteer service and, you know, in their sorority or their fraternity. And so even though that should stand out, it's actually pretty average, which sounds bad, but it's true. So anything you can say where, again, you've had a variety of shadowing experiences, even if you said like, I reached out and talked to a lot of different OTs and anything that just makes you seem like you've taken that extra step to really understand the profession um 
doing something a little bit more unique in the community with, again, vulnerable populations, like, um, you know, something that kind of gets your hands a little dirty in the community versus, you know, I don't know. I think things like that just make um, people stand out a little bit more. And that's really what's going to separate people um, beyond their grades and things like that. Mm -hmm. And particularly if they have a special focus so that if it's, um, you know, if they do a whole lot of different things, that's fine. That's really great. But if they have a real focus on one thing, for example, if they're interested in technology and they've done a lot of things with computers and apps, that's very applicable because a lot of what we do is with computers and apps right now. So, you know, both ways for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, you've both mentioned shadowing and the importance to get an idea of what it feels like early. Um, could you give me an example of what a day would look like shadowing, uh, maybe in one type of environment? So if someone was like, okay, I want to shadow somebody, but I'm not sure what that's going to look like. I'm a little nervous. Um, if you could give us an example of what a day shadowing would look like. I can jump in with, um, with Children's Rehab Services, one of the clinics, because we have people shadow there all the time. So that's a team setting. We have there's a speech language pathologist who runs the clinic, and then we have a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. We have a rehab engineer and a social worker. And so and we have a set schedule of children, and we usually take about an hour and a half per child to decide on if they're eligible, if there's somebody who could use an augmentative device, and if they are somebody who could do that, then which device? And there are many, many different devices out there. So the students come and they sit in, um, they get introduced to the family, we tell them they're because they're interested, um, and then we go through the whole process of interviewing the family, and at the same time, playing with the child basically is what we're doing if they're young children and they're not all young children. Um, and talk with the child, get a sense of what they're able to do with their hands, with their eyes, um, how do they respond to the environment, those kinds of things. And then we start playing with some of the different devices and see how they um, engage with that. Now, some of the children that come in already, we already have a good sense of what they want, or maybe there's somebody who've outgrown their current system and we're going to move them down the road. So the, the person who's shadowing gets to sit there and see all of that activity going on. And it can seem a little chaotic sometimes, especially if we have a child who has a behavior problem um, who is screaming or throwing things, and we have a few of those. Um, but it's an opportunity to see how people handle that kind of stuff. I think too, um, most settings are used to people calling and asking this shadow. So I know it's a little anxiety provoking to call a random facility and ask to talk to the OT department and ask if they can shadow. But our profession, we're used to that. So, um, you know, most will be glad. We love to talk about our profession because people don't know what it is too. So most of us are, you know, eager to do that. And again, I think it's very setting specific. Like I worked in acute care and rehab, so I loved having people with me, but they'd have to be able to move fast and not, you know, I didn't have a ton of time to talk to them maybe till the end of the day or whatever, um, you know, and then like outpatient, you might have six patients you think are going to come, two don't show up. So you have hours where you can talk and, you know, really, um, have that exchange or like a school system, you might be in a classroom and watch the classroom and the teacher and then maybe be with the OT part of the day and speech therapist part of the day. So it can look very different depending on the setting. Um, but most people want you there, you know, and some will limit how many hours you can do. Um, 
So you just have to ask all those questions, but it really is just picking up the phone and, or you know someone that can help you facilitate that. Um, but yeah, it is anywhere where you're somewhere new. Um, it's scary. Like they should always ask what to wear and, you know, all that kind of stuff. The more you know before you walk in, the better. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it should be considered fun and um, you're not going to do it. Like you're not going to be able to do anything with the patient. So, you know, you're not going to hurt anyone. You're just there to learn. So it's kind of like a fly on the wall, but attached to your hip. And I would always, yeah. like, if someone would follow me, I would, I would be like, all right. I want it to be a hectic day to see if you can uh, take this kind of environment. Yeah. Um, you know, I know you'd be able like to do that. Yeah. In a rehab setting, you might be sitting in a gym. So you get to see PT, OT, speech all at the same time. And that's a lot of times what we hear is, oh, I went to shadow a PT and then I saw the OT working next to them and was like, oh, they look like they're having way more fun. What are they doing? And so, you know, sometimes you go to shadow one profession and you get to see something else that makes you interested. Now we were kind of like talking Sarah said, about, Dr. Vogel, go ahead, sorry. I apologize. That's all right. Um, what I was gonna say was, Sarah, as Sarah said, if you're in an outpatient setting or even sometimes in acute care, somebody may cancel, but a lot of the times you're running. I mean, it is a straight eight, 10 hour day. Um, and so you're right, somebody needs to know if they can put up with that or not. <laughs> yeah, trial by fire. That's right. Um, <laughs> Now, we talked a little bit about the shadowing experience and if someone's interested in getting into the profession, what that would kind of look like for them. I'd like to talk about another point there is for the individual and the family. Uh, what would it look like for them when someone says, you know, your son or your daughter or you, um, you know, should look into getting occupational therapy? What is kind of their process in contacting to get it? And then maybe that first meeting uh, to soften that up if they're a little nervous. Well, it depends on the setting. So if it's a, a baby who has trouble and they need maybe to be referred to um, early uh, intervention, then the doctor can make that referral or the parent can pick up the phone and call um, and do that. So, if, and if they're in the school system, oftentimes they'll get picked up sometimes because they have a history in early intervention in preschool. So they may have a known disability and those kids would almost automatically get at least evaluated by occupational therapy and then picked up. And in those two settings, you don't need a physician referral. On an outpatient basis or even in the hospital, you're going to need to have an order from the physician written. So the parent would be able to go to the physician and say, I would like my child to be evaluated by occupational therapy. And that would be the, the process. They might have to argue sometimes, depending on what setting they're in. And usually we'll have them come in, like if, if it's with a child and, you know, the parents there. For example, I've done a lot of behavioral feeding where the child, like, you know, refuses to eat or isn't eating enough or having behaviors around meals. And so for the first, again, before you even walk in the door, you should, the parents should have an idea, like, we need you to bring the food that they're, they typically eat um the plate and the spoon and the you know the cup that they use usually use and then um there's a lot of going back and forth so i would be asking the family a bunch of questions while i'm also observing and doing something with the child a lot of times the child's nervous and they're screaming and crying and won't let go of their parent's leg and the parent's all embarrassed and frustrated and we're used to that that's what you know we get child right. development so 
Um, I think anything that can like, ease the parent's mind that, you know, we know it's not going to always go smoothly the first time. And, um, you know, so we find ways around that. And I've had initial evaluations where I didn't get to see anything the child usually does because I've cried under the table for an hour. And I just go by the parent report and I try to build some rapport with the child. So the next time they come in, we can move forward. But most of the time, you know, we might ask the family to leave the room for a few minutes because a lot of times once the family's out of the room, they actually will bond with us a little bit. Um, so we might do that. Like certain um, outpatient clinics have observation windows and sometimes they don't. You just have to sit in the hallway. Um, you know, so I think we just kind of adapt the situation based on what's happening. Um, but we want the family there as much as possible. It's a collaborative thing. You know, we're not asking questions to make like, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, why did you never feed them this, right? I'm, I'm, we're always asking in a way to just see the whole picture. And so sometimes we're gonna ask sensitive questions and um, whatever, but hopefully the OT is doing it in a way that makes the parent feel comfortable and that sort of thing. Sometimes we might do like a standardized evaluation where there's forms that either the family has to fill out, like an inner, you know, like a checklist, um, or we might be doing a specific assessment on the child where like we have to do certain items and say a specific thing, you know, because it's standardized. Um, but most of the time we should be letting the family know like what to expect from the session and what the next steps are. So, you know, usually by the end of the session, we'll talk about what we think. Do we think they need some OT? Do we think we need to see them one or two times to, you know, try to tease it all out? And then we'll come up with like scheduling and, you know, look at the insurance or whatever, however they're going to, you know, pay and figure out what the next steps are. That seems like it and could if you be a I'm sorry. I was just going to say, if you're if you're an adult and in a place like um, United Ability in, at Link Point, they have occupational therapists on staff, and they can see the clients just very freely within that setting. Um, I'm sure. I think when Partlow was open, they had occupational therapists on staff, although very few of them compared to what the population was like at that time. So in the adult facilities. If it's an inpatient facility, then usually there's an occupational therapist on staff and it's a matter of getting a request. But if you're somebody at home who has a need, then again, it's an issue of going to your physician and asking. Uh, there's one follow-up I'd like to ask. Uh, Dr. Vogel, you mentioned that sometimes you may have to go back and forth with the doctor before they'll write uh, that referral. Um, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, I think Sarah and I both working, having a background in pediatrics, um, Pediatricians are wonderful people and they take great care of their patients, but they tend to not want parents to worry and just get them going through the natural growth and, and experience and so forth. But parents are really good about picking up on things that their child is not doing. And so they may say something to the pediatrician who may pat them on the back and say, well, we're gonna wait a while, he'll just grow out of it. Um, and so in those cases, you have to have a parent who's really willing to say, um, I am really concerned and I need you to help me get a prescription kind of thing. And I think both of us have seen families who have really had to, to fight the, the bitter fight to get services um, for their child. Now, um, that seems to be more true, I think, with the pediatric population. With the adult population, it's not nearly as, as uh, difficult as that. 
that's one thing that we talk about on here a lot is advocacy, family advocacy, self-advocacy, group advocacy, how to speak up for yourself, uh, those types of things. <clears throat> and when you're going in with this as a parent and you're noticing things that you want to advocate for your child to get occupational therapy, I imagine it can be a little stressful, like you're, you're noticing these challenges that your, your son or daughter has, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, maybe if we just get OT, this challenge will go away. Um, and you're really hoping for some of those things. And when you go to that first meeting with an occupational therapy, it can be like, oh, this has to go great. Like son or daughter, please don't act up and kind of putting stress on the child to act perfect. Um, you have seen that, it's just like you have to take that shield off. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's what Sarah was describing for sure, absolutely. Everybody's anxious, everybody's uptight, you know, from the family client perspective and, and getting through that first session is really difficult. Yeah. And that's where I think all those questions come in because the, the child might not display the things that, you know, the family are concerned about because they're not in their natural environment and they're stressed or, or they're on their best behavior because, you know, they're showing off for a stranger or whatever. Um, so that's why I think just questioning and like building rapport with the parents is so important because we do, and you know, we're all about routine and that sort of thing. So we're going to ask the family, tell me your typical day. Tell me what, you know, what seems to be the issue? Is it time of day? What do they act like in the morning versus the afternoon? And just from that, we're going to be able to say most of the time, like, yeah, it sounds like there's some sensory things going on or some, you know, something we need to work on. Like maybe it is their fine motor or their visual motor skills. And now they're frustrated because, you know, they're going to school and they can't keep up or whatever. So we can get a lot of that information just through the interview and observing the child. Um, and so I get, I mean, I'm a parent, I get how stressful it is to, to make that decision to go. But I think the worst we're going to say is like, let's wait a little bit. Right. But most of the time, if a family is that concerned that they're advocating for their child, they are usually the expert and there usually is something going on, even if it's something just short term that we need to deal with. Um, but the earlier you can tackle it, the better there's evidence that that is true. And so, um, and children develop so quickly that, you know, if you wait a couple months, a lot of times you've missed a big window where, you know, you can really start working on those um, developmental skills at, you know, an earlier time, um, you know, it's, that's really important. So I think anytime a, a parent has that intuition that there's something that, you know, needs to be looked at, it's not going to hurt. Right. And it's, if anything, it's going to really help the child. Um, and I think sometimes the family needs that validation too, because I think a lot of times friends are like, Oh, it's okay. They're going to grow out of it. Or, Oh, I don't see that. You must just, you know, whatever. And so I think sometimes to go to an expert that can say like, yeah, you know, I see what you're saying. They do seem like they have some sensory things or some behavioral things we need to address. I think, a lot of times it's comforting to the family because they've already seen it. They just haven't had a name for it or they haven't had someone validate those concerns. So, um, you know, that should be how it goes. Of course, there's always the rare time you get there and it doesn't go as planned or, you know, it's not the best experience. But for the most part, it should be a really, um, you know, a very collaborative experience with the therapist and the parent. 
Uh, trust your gut. If you're a parent or an individual, trust your gut and get that recommendation and go see uh, Dr. Vogel and Dr. Tucker. Well, you may not see them directly, <laughs> depending on what's going on. Um, but another aspect of that that the parents might be thinking about is, well, how much is this going to cost? You know, this sounds like we're, we're visiting a lot of people and settings. Uh, what is the cost to the individual and the family there? How does that work with insurance, non-insurance? So the cost is going to vary significantly depending on if you're in an outpatient hospital setting versus a private practice setting versus a school system setting where you may not have to pay anything at all. So the answer is it varies. Uh, <laughs> um, it also varies according to the kind of insurance that you have. So that if you have Medicaid, uh, for example, there are services are usually a lot more easily uh, accessible, they're easy to get, and the Medicare Medicaid will cover those costs. They usually have a limit to how long you can be seen, and, the, and you have to do a lot of careful documentation. If you have private health insurance, Blue Cross Blue Shield, any of the others, um, it really depends on the policy that you have. Um, and some of them cover a lot, some of them cover a little, and some cover nothing at all. So it's a really hard call. You have to really sit down and say, okay, what insurance do you have, and let's look into it and see. I'm going to kind of no put you on the spot. I'll, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. You don't have to answer, but if I didn't have any insurance and I was getting OT for a month, but one time a week, two times a week, what would I want to generally budget to make sure that I could pay that bill? I'd say three to $400. Okay. I and appreciate again, you, it, you. Would it would depend on where. So if, if it's a private outpatient clinic, um, if it's hand therapy, for example, that's a specialty. People usually um, get a lot of education and specialty certification for that. So that might be more expensive. Um, also, if it's a group, I mean, if you're in a group therapy setting, not many insurances cover groups, but there are some, then it's going to be a little bit cheaper. Um, and if there is a modality involved, and that's not usually an OT, but you see it some, in terms of some of some of the e-stem and those kinds of things that may or may not cost a little bit more so there's lots again lots of variables there but i would say somewhere between three and four hundred dollars for a month every once a week for an hour that's a pretty reasonable cost not for the person who's paying it mind you but <laughs> and i think too like a lot of places will like say i knew that someone needed a ot eval and didn't have insurance um and the family might say like we can't pay to come once a week and that's where you know it might not be best case scenario but probably what the ot would do in that case is give them some strategies to work on at home and like maybe they could come less often or um you know wait a little bit using those strategies and then see what happens or you know sometimes what happens is people don't realize that their plan doesn't cover OT because they've never needed it. And so I know I had families where they had to wait till they could re-enroll for the next year and then, you know, pay sure. a little bit more per to get a different plan um, where it would, then it would cover OT. So again, I think most places are willing to as much as they can to work with the family, um, you know, to, <laughs> to at least get them started or give them, you know, a little bit to go on. Um, and I think the other thing is just knowing you're probably going to have to wait. I mean, insurance or not, you're going to have to wait a little bit, that, you know, to get on someone's schedule to get an evaluation. And then 
you know, if you only can do eight o'clock, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon on Mondays, it's going to be hard to get someone to be able to fit you in your schedule. So I think that has got to be frustrating from a, for a, from a parent perspective. And even if you have a good insurance pay, plan and you're just doing co-pays, I know that adds up when, you know, you have an injury and you have to go see a PT three times a week and you're working out $30 every time you go to a visit. So again, advocating for yourself, like maybe you only can afford to come to OT, even if it's just the copay. like I only have in my budget to come twice a month, right? And so that's better than nothing. And the OT should to figure out how to give you as much as they can give you within your budget. Pediatric settings are a little bit more flexible than adult settings, I will say that. Um, and it's not that the therapist won't try and work with you in an adult setting, but oftentimes, if, especially if it's an outpatient for a hospital, for example, then there's not much they can control there, except for the kinds of things that Sarah has said, trying to work with you to see what would best fit your financial picture. I appreciate you giving us a hard, not, not a hard number there, but giving us a ballpark because I wouldn't know if it would be $2,000 or if it would be $100. So kind of giving us that range there, what that might look like. <clears throat> and then Dr. Tucker talking about those strategies. Um, we see that in the ID community, intellectual disability community, when we talk a lot about somebody being on the waiting list to receive that waiver. Uh, those services and we we have a lot of talk around the strategies that you can do at home or on yourself or with your family while you're waiting to get on, receive those services um, so when you talk about coming for the first um, meeting with an ot and getting some of those strategies even if you don't do it throughout the month but having that first visit can really make a big difference for you every day even at, even at home now we only have a few more minutes here um, and i do want to ask uh each of you a question that is more specific to your area of interest. Um, Dr. Tucker, I will start. Um, some of your interest has been in the incarceration and uh, the prison system in Alabama. Um, what is the biggest factor for incarceration in Alabama? We only have a few minutes, so I'll keep it short. But um, I do have to say in Alabama, OTs are not involved in the prison setting. In other areas of the country, and especially in other countries, um, OT really is embedded more in the prison system. So that's my push is to get us in there, um, both preventing incarceration, helping them while they're in prison, and then also when they transition out of prison into the community. Um, I already forgot your question. The biggest thing I think is knowing that, um, again, like they have to have a meaningful routine and have to have the skills, um, you know, that they need. So in Alabama, in general, in the United States, our population, how much we imprison people is ridiculous. Our numbers are like not even close to the rest of the world as far as how many people we incarcerate. We incarcerate poor people. We incarcerate people with mental health issues. And some of that is because of that deinstitutionalization where there used to be institutions for people with mental health where, you know, they could reside there. Um, those are, you know, you're supposed to be able to get those services in the community, but there's not good services for substance abuse. There's not good services for, um, you know, for all of that is very scattered. Um, so like our homeless population as well, they are at risk for incarceration because 
they have mental health issues and they go out on the streets and you know again they're overwhelmed or they're um doing something with substances and they get arrested and once you start as soon as you get arrested and you end up in the criminal justice system the likelihood that you're going to continue on that cycle is really high because you have to pay fines you have to show up you know to your court date and if you don't have transportation you don't have money you can't pay for your driver's license to be renewed and so the more you get you know cited for something the more times you show up in court eventually the laws you know you end up in prison so and then once you're in prison things are just worse for you you're not getting good treatment people are getting re-traumatized so a lot of them come in with a trauma background and then you know they're not being treated properly or there's more drugs in prison than out of prison which is crazy but it's true so people that you know you think you go to prison and you're going to get off the substances and come back in the community that's usually not what happens and so once they're in prison even for, or have a criminal record you try to get out you can't find a job you can't find good housing you're even more poor and even more stigmatized and so that cycle just continues they're not getting the mental health services that's a big thing in alabama they don't have enough psychologists and psychiatrists in the prison system so my push is let ot be a support. We can't give meds and things like that, but we can help with those meaningful things and, you know, giving them the skills. So when they do get out of prison, they have some resources and they have some strategies. Um, so, you know, there's nonprofits out there to support um, these at-risk populations, but again, trying for them to find them and get there and all that stuff. It just is like layer upon layer of things that are mind boggling to try to sort through. Um, and again, I think OT is a good um, facilitator of all those things because we can look at the person, the environment and really come up with some ways to give them, you know, how can you meet, how do you make a short term goal? How can you meet small little goals to build success? How can we get peers in your life that are going to help you um, you know, that sort of thing. So that's my very long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have one quick follow-up to that. Um, what does that look like? Or where is that is legislation that you're trying to push to get OT involved in that process? Or where about in that process are we as a state? Well, it's not in OT. That's not in the, you know, there, I don't think there's a legal push for it. I think it's more networking. And I keep telling my students, it's just going to take certain people saying, hey, let me get in there and do this, um, you know, for free, like, let me volunteer to run a group or um, like a lot of my, like my community-based class, um, the students are working with a nonprofit for ex-offenders. So I feel like the more we can show what we can do, um, like there's a program in Montgomery that another OT gets their students involved that helps moms that have children, you know, while the mother's incarcerated. So I think the more we can get in and do things like that um, and show that in other states it really is working to have OT um, in the prison, um, like trauma-informed care is all of a sudden a bigger push. Um, so I'm hoping, that's my thing, is advocating for people to start pushing. And I think once there's an OT in there and shows that it's effective, hopefully um, you know, that'll just get more and more common. Grassroots. Um, so getting your foot in the yes. door there. And, uh, Dr. Vogel, I know that you have a commitment at two o'clock. Um, so I want to ask you really quick. Um, 
some of your uh, focus has been on cerebral palsy in aging uh, adults. My family member has cerebral palsy, and I'd just like to ask, what are some findings that kind of caught you off guard during your study, the little insights um, that you'd like to share? Um, and it's more, I have done some research on adults with cerebral palsy, looking at ways to prevent problems with pain and fatigue. But also, um, I have, have served on national committees and international committees working on some of the challenges that we see in adults with CP. And one of the biggies is loss of function early on. So if you have somebody who's, for example, able to walk, <clears throat> usually by the time they're in their late 20s, early 30s, the amount of walking they're able to do starts to drop and oftentimes it may completely go away early on. Um, and then they may have difficulties being able to continue to take care of themselves. I'm working with a gentleman right now who was college graduate, drove, had held down a job and now he's totally dependent seven years later. So there's a lot and we don't really know exactly why that happens. We have some suspicion. Um, some of it's that the amount of surgery that they've had, um, how physically active they are, what kind of setting that they're in, um, and intellectually um, where they are coming from and so forth. Um, but it's it's a very difficult road to hoe and we've known about the loss of function for a very long time and we still don't really understand it. So it's a big concern. Um, and as our, you know, we didn't used to think that children with CP live into adulthood, but now most of the population of people with CP is adults. And so that they have a number of concerns um, and they have tried to advocate for themselves and I think are doing a better job than they used to be able to do. Although the attention still focuses on the children, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and end the broadcast here. I'd love to have another half hour, so maybe we'll have to do another one in the future. <laughs> Sure thing. Um, but I'd just like to say thank you both for spending um, this afternoon with us and teaching us about what occupational therapy is and kind of behind the scenes there uh, for individuals, families, and maybe students that are up and coming. So, um, But at this time, I'll go ahead and end the broadcast. Uh, Dr. Vogel and Dr. Tucker, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to meet you and know you. And once again, thank you for being here with us. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Yes, indeed. Bye-bye.